This is the third great crisis of the very young 21st century. Following 9-11 and the 2008-2009 financial crisis, we now have the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. But to paraphrase the famous book by Reinhardt and Rogoff, this time really is different. I believe that policymakers now face the most difficult crisis since World War II and perhaps the worst peacetime crisis in modern history. When we kicked off the year, geopolitics was front and center in the market narrative. Just a few months later, the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated and accelerated many of the key geopolitical trends already underway. In response to the crisis, we're seeing fragmentation between countries and a striking lack of great power leadership. We're also seeing heightened tensions between the U.S. and China as we count down to what will undoubtedly be an unprecedented presidential election in the U.S. Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Catherine Kress. Today, we'll hear from Tom Donilon, chairman of the BlackRock Investment Institute and former U.S. National Security Advisor, on how the COVID-19 pandemic has shaped the geopolitical environment. Tom recently shared his perspective at a global town hall for BlackRock's employees. In this episode, we'll give you an inside look at what he told us about what makes this crisis different and the key geopolitical themes that he sees emerging. To begin, Tom made the humbling point that we're in a unique and extraordinarily difficult time. But what makes this crisis different? Let's hear what Tom had to say. First, there's a crisis of a very unusual sort. Essentially, the economy has been forced into a coma by policymakers seeking to halt the spread of the virus and prevent overwhelming healthcare systems. The financial response has been extraordinary in scale and timeliness and the extent of cooperation between monetary and fiscal authorities. But second, this is also a health crisis. And these are the most difficult challenges. At least in the United States and Europe, the financial authorities can act in a timely and effective manner. They're well exercised, not so on the health side. We face great uncertainties as to the duration and the severity of the pandemic and the ability of nations around the world to deal with it. Third, unlike 9-11 and the great financial crisis, there has been a striking lack of international cooperation this time around. This time around, the G7, G20, and the UN have played decidedly lesser roles in addressing the crisis, and there's been a real absence of great power leadership, and it's particularly striking. Fourth, There are significant uncertainties as we try to envision the post-crisis environment and few historical parallels to guide the way. I think behavioral analysis is going to be critical as we try and determine how individuals and businesses and nations will conduct themselves in a post-crisis environment. To quote the historian Adam Tooze, who wrote a significant book on the 2008 crisis, this is a period of radical uncertainty, an order of magnitude greater than anything we're used to. And last, In addition to bringing new things forward, I think this crisis is going to accelerate and exacerbate the geopolitical trends that preceded it. Tom offered his perspective on why this crisis is different. The global economy has been forced into a standstill. As a health crisis, this one is much more difficult to handle. Nations have acted apart instead of together. And there's a lot of uncertainty as we try to move forward. But Tom also mentioned that the crisis will accelerate geopolitical trends that were already in place. He sees four trends taking shape. A coming storm for emerging markets, a worsening outlook for U.S.-China relations, massive state intervention into the private economy, and continued deglobalization. First, let's dive into emerging markets. The pandemic has certainly put a lot of pressure on some advanced economies, like the U.S., Italy, Spain, and the U.K. But a big worry has been among developing countries, 
countries like those in Asia, Latin America, and Africa, whose economies are already fragile with limited room for policy and weak healthcare infrastructure. The pandemic is going to bring a storm to the emerging markets. These countries face really a tough set of pressures. One, weak healthcare infrastructures alongside more limited institutional capacities make emerging markets particularly vulnerable. India, for example, has less than one hospital bed for every thousand people. By contrast, South Korea has more than 12. Social distancing policies are often impossible to implement, and restrictions on the export of medical supplies and equipment from Europe and the United States, I think, will exacerbate their challenges. Two, emerging markets are facing a severe loss of income and significant capital flight. The IMF now expects that per capita income will shrink in 170 of 189 member countries at revenues from commodity exports, tourism, remittances, and global demand from the developed markets crash. Capital outflows from the emerging markets have been roughly four times the size of that during the great financial crisis. Third, the coronavirus comes at a time when the emerging markets are economically constrained in their ability to provide relief. We could very well see a series of sovereign and corporate debt crises creating spillover risks for the global economy. Now, the IMF is seeking to offset the crisis and appears prepared to leverage its firepower to confront it. The debt moratorium announced by the G20 was welcome, and we could slowly see developed market stimulus make its way to the emerging markets via increased demand. Over the weeks and months ahead, pressure on governments in the emerging markets to relax lockdown policies and provide economic relief will grow. Emerging market policymakers face really difficult choices. Extended lockdown brings unsustainable poverty levels. By contrast, a premature return to activity could cause mass outbreaks of the disease. Finally, and more generally, emerging markets have been key beneficiaries of globalization, with drastic reductions in poverty and the building of middle-class households. Decades of progress are now at risk of being erased, leading to greater inequality between countries. This is a key concern of our global analysis. I think it should be a real focus of the developed world and the international financial institutions. The bottom line is that emerging markets face significant challenges on the road ahead challenges that may threaten critical progress against poverty and social stability in these nations. The second trend that Tom discussed is China and U.S.-China relations more broadly. We started the year with the view that U.S.-China tensions were structural in nature and broadening to include multiple dimensions, like technology, trade, finance, and others. Let's hear how Tom's view has evolved since then. The coronavirus has exacerbated already fraught relations between the United States and China. Whatever goodwill came from the phase one trade agreement has been lost amid mutual recriminations, a push by China to advance its global position, and bipartisan backlash in the United States. On the U.S. side, there's been an aggressive effort to place accountability on China for the virus's origin and efforts to conceal the outbreak. On the China side, China has launched a multifaceted effort to gain geopolitical advantage coming out of the crisis. Bottom line, I fear that U.S.-China relations will continue to deteriorate post-crisis no matter the outcome of the November elections. The two countries will emerge from the crisis with reduced trust and decoupling will accelerate in areas beyond technology. This is a very big challenge for policymakers. Tom's view is that U.S.-China relations will worsen across the board, especially given that it's an election year in the U.S. The next trend he highlighted was the scale of state intervention. In response to the crisis, both monetary and fiscal policymakers have taken extensive steps to keep the global economy afloat. In Tom's eyes, those measures are just the beginning. The pandemic has led to massive policy intervention by governments around the world into the private economy. The extent of that intervention, in my judgment, is only going to grow, given the requirements. 
Developed market governments are deploying a monetary and fiscal response at a scale never seen before in peacetime. One thing we know from European and history in the United States as well is that crises and major events like wars often produce states that are larger, more powerful, and more intrusive. One particular area of increased coronavirus-driven intervention is the use of surveillance technology using cell phones to identify those who've come in contact with infected persons to track the direction of the disease and to enforce quarantine orders. These techniques have been used successfully in Asia, particularly in South Korea. This begs the question, will these intrusions that you wouldn't normally see outside a crisis environment, particularly in countries with strong privacy traditions, will they be sunset after the crisis? As, by the way, is the case in Singapore, where the laws have indicated they're going to be sunset. I would bet generally not. Tom mentioned that times of crisis often produce states that are larger, more powerful, and more intrusive. This expanding state authority is taking place against a backdrop of heightened geopolitical fragmentation and deglobalization. The current crisis is shining a light on the vulnerabilities that companies have in their supply chains. Between reshoring activities, border shutdowns, and some of the stockpiling activity that we've seen, Tom shares his views on the risk to globalization as we know it. The coronavirus has brought nationalist, protectionist trends into sharp relief. And deglobalization, I think, is set to accelerate. The pandemic has triggered a wave of export restrictions. At least 69 countries have banned or restricted the export of protective equipment, medical devices, and medicines. In the U.S., officials have explicitly called for reshoring of medical supplies through tax breaks and Buy America provisions. Global trade, already under pressure from the U.S., led trade wars the past two years, is now set to contract more than 10% in 2020. Second, governments around the world have implemented extensive travel restrictions. We haven't seen these kinds of restrictions on the borders since World War II. As countries seek to protect themselves from importing the virus and to preserve employment, it's likely these travel and migration restrictions may be some of the last to be lifted. Third, and more generally, the coronavirus and the nationalist impulses it's ignited will increase pressures on globalization and supply chains and force a reevaluation of the interconnected global economy. Building on pressures from the financial crisis, rising populism, U.S.-China competition, Business leaders and policymakers now recognize the need for greater supply chain resilience and diversity, even if at the expense of efficiency. We have national security and reliability concerns most visible in the U.S.-China tech war that will now extend to concerns, I think, over pharmaceuticals and medical equipment. And the drive towards greater localization will add further strain, just as large a government presence in the economy will bring increased focus to protections for domestic industries. That's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure on supply chains. There's a lot of pressure on globalization. I think we'll look back at this moment as really an important point in the history of globalization. While the COVID-19 pandemic has become the only story in the news cycle, the November presidential election in the U.S. is likely to be one of the most consequential in modern history. As someone who has been close to several U.S. elections, Tom shared his perspective on how the pandemic will impact the November presidential contest. First, the coronavirus has injected a massive amount of uncertainty into the November elections. None of the assumptions that we held before the crisis remain useful for analysis in my judgment at this point. The only bit of clarity we have came when Senator Sanders dropped out of the race, thereby confirming Vice President Biden as a Democratic nominee. And the Democratic Party is now in the process of uniting behind Vice President Biden. Second, the pandemic has dramatically upended the nature of campaigning in the presidential nomination process. Vice President Biden's campaigning virtually from his home in Delaware, and the president is present every day, and in some parts campaigning from the White House briefing room. 
Already 16 states and Puerto Rico have delayed their primaries and the Democrats have postponed their convention. Moving forward, we'll see the party's battle over efforts to deal with voting in the time of the coronavirus. Fights over extending voting times, early voting, vote by mail, other access issues. Now, some have asked, it's been one of the questions I've gotten the most over the last couple of weeks, is could the president delay or postpone the November election? The answer is no. The date of the election on the first Tuesday in November is set by an 1845 statute passed by Congress. That date can only be changed by Congress. U.S. elections, by the way, took place during the Civil War in 1864, during the 1918 pandemic, and during the Second World War. And in 1864, President Lincoln famously stated, if the rebellion could force us to forego or postpone a national election, it might fairly claim to have already conquered and ruined us. I think the same thing would be said about the virus this time around. Approaching November, state polls are the measure to watch. Though national polls show Vice President Biden ahead, just a few battleground states will decide the outcome of the election. Indeed, in two out of the five last presidential elections, the winner of the popular vote lost in the overall election in the Electoral College. These factors point, I think, to a close election. In summary, the most complex crisis of the 21st century, a coming storm for emerging markets, continued deterioration of U.S.-China relations, massive state intervention, accelerating deglobalization, and a tightly contested U.S. election. Tom painted a pretty grim picture, but it's not all bad. While the coronavirus presents enormous challenges, it also presents significant opportunities. Crisis has stress-tested our social contracts and now forces us to address those areas where we've historically underinvested. And with good leadership, we have an opportunity to reevaluate the effectiveness of our international institutions in cooperating, building new ones, specifically, I think, around healthcare. Another opportunity we see? Sustainability. We believe the current crisis is putting a bigger focus on creating a more sustainable world. There's been a concern that when we hit a downturn, investors would run away from sustainability. But in this crisis, we've seen the opposite. Investors are looking to sustainable investing more than ever, and sustainable investments have shown resilience despite uncertainty. This shift towards sustainability, along with the trends that Tom discussed, have been on our radar for several years, but the coronavirus crisis will amplify each of them. This crisis may forge a new path for years to come. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on The Bid. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, 
This material is intended for public distribution. In the UK, this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone plus 44020-7743-3000, registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.